Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Hayes here with Dr. Julia Conroy. This is our Polyvago series. In this series, we're taking a shared journey to learn more about how stress impacts our bodies from a polyvagal perspective. If you're a therapist or counselor, you can earn CEs by listening. Check the description to learn how you can listen and earn. At the beginning of each episode, we like to review the basics of polyvagal theory. Polyvagal theory tells us that our bodies have three ways of responding, all depending on how safe or threatened we feel. First, when we we feel safe or only a little challenged, our bodies are designed to seek connection. This is when our bodies are primed for growth and physical healing. But sometimes we face outright challenges. When this happens, our heart rate and breathing speed up and we go into our second response, fight or flight. This is when our bodies are primed for movement. This is also when we are prone to irritation and anxiety. And if we're facing what feels like a life-threatening situation, our heart rate and breathing slow way down and we use our third response, freezing. There are different types of freezing. Some of the types of freezing are things like going numb, fainting, feeling depressed, or having chronic fatigue and lethargy. However, our bodies respond to challenges and threats. The important thing to remember is all of these systems are working together to maximize protection for our most vulnerable systems. In short, our bodies are designed to keep us safe. To understand the relationship between these three responses and our physical and mental health, we're looking at the extensive research on how stress impacts our bodies. Our main text for this is Robert Sapolsky's book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Have you ever like met him or been in a conference with him or Sapolsky? I, I haven't. I've just read his work um, and haven't interacted with him face to face with you. I've been to a conference he was at. And okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm also, you know, like just the nerd of all nerds. So he has <laughs> his like capstone class up on YouTube. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he teaches, I think, for Stanford. And um, yeah, he has like his whole, like one of his whole, oh, a 15 weeks lecture. And I think I've listened to all of them. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> you know, it's like him. And I've seen him at a, at a conference. This guy mm-hmm. is hilarious. If you ever have the chance to see him at a conference, it's like stand-up comedy from a, a scientist. <laughs> like, like he's, he's hilarious. He's just a riot. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see that in the writing in the book that oh, there's man. like the comparisons and the analogies that he makes, but yes. also like there's just some like quick wit slid in there. Yes. It's not surprising. Yeah, I uh, I don't think we're doing the book justice because this guy is he's 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 really funny. He's really funny. <laughs> so if you or anybody else gets the chance to see him or wants to check him out on uh, YouTube, he is just phenomenal. It's the most entertaining science class you've 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 ever yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and I mean, what can be funnier than you know the body's response to stress? <laughs> it's like all that content is just waiting. It's just waiting right? there, right? It's <laughs> such low hanging fruit, but somebody's got to pick it. Somebody's got to pick it. Yeah, that's the brilliance of it. You're like, yeah. how is this gonna be hilarious? But he just makes it so good. <laughs> um, and so in this chapter on the metabolism. Mm-hmm. on our metabolic system he is really honing in on three different areas right mm-hmm. he talks about basically how our metabolism works mm-hmm. then he goes into type 1 diabetes or juvenile mm-hmm. diabetes mm-hmm. he then goes into type 2 diabetes or adult onset diabetes mm-hmm. and then uh he talks about metabolic syndrome or syndrome x mm-hmm. um and for me starting off like that alone was fascinating because one, I didn't know how to, I didn't know anything about our metabolism. Mm-hmm. And two, I really did not understand the terminology for diabetes or also just mm-hmm. like what the difference was. So I'm yeah. excited to just sort of hop in here. Absolutely. Yeah. You kind of hear these terms thrown out a lot around like blood sugar and insulin. And it's like, all right, I know maybe these things how they pertain, but it, when you kind of fit those pieces together and understand how the body is so resourceful and getting what it needs when it needs it, um, but also the ways that that can go wrong. Um, it, it's just really fascinating. Yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes. Um, <clears throat> so let's jump into metabolism 101. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, we gotta come. With, now that you said that about Zapolsky, I'm like, man, we've gotta come with jokes. We oh, gotta, yeah, I know. Uh, you yeah. feel the pressure now, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, I think he really breaks this down, right? Like last mm-hmm. week, we talked a little bit about um the impact that stress has on our bodies and how it basically mm-hmm. liquidates our body's resources. Right. And, and this is what he says. He, I mean, the title of this chapter is liquidating your assets, right? Like it's kind of <laughs> silly, right? Like, but basically what happens is, is that when you, when, when we eat, our body takes macronutrients, which is basically proteins, fats, and sugars, proteins, mm-hmm. fats, and sugars, um, and stores those in our body cells. Mm-hmm. That's basically what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, proteins, I think, are called amino acids. Um, fats are called what fatty acids, and um, yeah, fatty acids. And then sugar is glucose. Mm-hmm. And for me, this was like the first eye-opening moment because I'd always heard about glucose, but I didn't realize it was sugar. And mm-hmm. he has this beautiful sort of breakdown, where he, you know, which makes it, I think, really, really useful, right? And so for certain things, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? Like, like if you're eating a steak, mm-hmm. that's mostly protein. So you're getting a lot of amino acids, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're like me and you love a good ribeye, you know, there's <laughs> lots of marbling, there's lots of fat, and that fat is going straight into, um, you know, fatty acids. That's basically what mm-hmm. it's turning into. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically everything else is sort of turned into glucose in the body. Yeah. Which was fascinating to me because i thought oh this is why people talk about having blood 
sugar spikes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, but you're eating a, you're not eating a, a you know, a, a Twix bar. You're yeah. eating a sandwich, right? <laughs> like I don't I'm like yeah. what's like how's it spiking your your blood sugar? Well, you know, um, starches, grains, carbohydrates, like those things are mm-hmm. all bread, right? Mm-hmm. Your body just turns it right into glucose, into sugar. That's gonna mm-hmm. blood. That's gonna spike your blood sugar. Um, and basically from there, what he sort of says is your body's way of storing these resources, the glucose, mm-hmm. the, the fat and the, and the proteins is through this, through this hormone called insulin. Mm-hmm. So insulin basically tells your, your cells, Hey, absorb all this nutrients mm-hmm. and we're going to store it for later. Right. Right. And that it can, um, I think it's important too, to say like, as it's being stored, the insulin also kind of shifts, um, as it's being stored in those cells, it changes form a bit. Um, so like you gave the example of proteins, uh, as it enters the bloodstream, it enters in as amino acids, but as the insulin is storing it in those cells, if there's a surplus, is it, it converts it back to a protein and it hangs out in the cell, right? Waiting to be tapped in um, as protein. And then in order for it to be converted back, right? If there's any sort of need for energy or a burst of energy, it gets converted back to amino acid so that it can enter the bloodstream again. Yes. And so it is, it's this kind of like going back and forth, depending on where it's being stored, how it's being used, the body is amazing in the way it converts this to kind of optimize storage, to optimize um, the way that it can be potentially used for energy later on. Yes, exactly. And he talks about that in the book, right? And part of what he says is glucocorticoids, right? Sugar-based glucose, sugar, corticoids, the sort of stressed hormones, and um, adrenaline, like those are some of the chemicals, those are some of the mm-hmm. um, hormones in our bodies that say, okay, it's time to convert these things out mm-hmm. of storage, mm-hmm. back into the amino acids, back, back into mm-hmm. whatever, and then we can use them in our, in our, our bodies. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the question I have for you before we get into like the next sort of section was, is there any sort of nuance to this mm-hmm. that we have to address, right? We're sort of laying out a really basic understanding, mm-hmm. but we don't want to blade it out too basic that it's blatantly wrong. Right. <laughs> right. Like, right. There's, a, there's a point where we can grossly oversimplify and then it's just like, that's, yeah. that's not how... So is, is there any sort of nuance that, that you're aware of that you're like, well, that's basically it, but we need to know about this? Yeah, I think that when I'm thinking about the metabolic system of the human body, the tension that I want to hold is the body is so resourceful, right, to convert energy in the way that's most adaptive, given especially the level of stress and the need that the body has. But even though that's amazing and we want to be aware of the ways that it does that, I think also being aware at the same time of how incredibly taxing Mm. that is for the body 
to do that because we talk about it kind of like it's this simplistic process of okay then it changes to an amino acid and then changes back to a protein when it's stored and then the body converts it back it does take a lot of energy for the body to do that and i want to make sure as we're talking about kind of the basics of that 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 piece doesn't get missed um that it does take kind of this uh expense, right. Of getting it converted back and getting it what it needs to does, uh, you know, cost the body, um, to have kind of this switching back and forth, even though it does it every day, right. Whenever I automatically need to sprint, uh, to catch something right. Or, or like there's some like physical need that comes up, but that does take a, a lot of energy for our bodies to make that conversion back and forth. Yeah. I think that's really important. I think um, for me, the thing I want people to really get it from this section, and this is something that I did not understand about polyvagal theory, is this is what we mean when we say the different states prime us for different behaviors and prime us for different responses, right? Like, because your body is primed under stress to release this, these, these energy stores mm-hmm. into the muscles so that the muscles can do whatever they need to do to keep mm-hmm. us safe. Our body is not primed to absorb nutrients. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, when I was learning about polyvagal theory, I didn't grok that sort of, that mm-hmm. sort of concept, right? Mm-hmm. And so really, I think for me, it's like, oh, if you're in a state of chronic stress and you're eating food, right, you're actually working against, in some ways, what your body is trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that's why people get into really weird um, habits and, and have mm-hmm. sort of weird medical conditions at times, not, not all the times, it's because mm-hmm. They are working against what their body is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So as um, so my body is saying, I'm stressed, I'm feeling overwhelmed, right? And it mobilizes in the way that it does. It can kind of send some confusing signals, right? Because it's sending off the message, I need to mobilize, go ahead and shut down digestion, go ahead and shut down everything that's not essential, get you know, blood to the muscles, release all that energy at times, right? Especially if we have this propensity towards stress eating, then the body's like, wait, what, (laughs) what is this? Like, you don't do this when we're stressed. I need to mobilize. We're trying to fight or flight here. Um, Why are you giving me more to do? I can't digest this right now. Right. And that's where we see kind of some uh, confusing digestive issues come up because I'm not able to have my body digest food the way that um, it's meant to when I'm in this state of stress, right? And with the metabolic system, it also causes some issues, right? With how it's stored or how um, I'm able to access that energy if it's consistently coming. Um, So I think that that's a really important piece that you're talking about here. So we have our nuance, right? We have the fact that, hey, this is a costly process for the body mm-hmm. to take these mm-hmm. things, convert them um, 
out of their uh, out of their forms and back and store them in the cells and then convert mm -hmm. them back to what we need out of the cells so we can get it into the muscles like that process mm -hmm. is costly mm -hmm. and also this process primes our body to do different things okay mm -hmm. um this also is a section where he talks about chronic fatigue mm -hmm. um and I wanted to ask you about that, right? Because he basically says that chronic fatigue is an underactive stress response. Mm -hmm. So when our metabolism can't, for whatever reason, sort of um, speed up and get mm -hmm. us into fight or flight, mm -hmm. um, that's, and, and we need to be sort of more activated, that's when we get chronic fatigue. Yeah, absolutely. When the body has, you know, a need to mobilize itself due to the energy demands that are there. Um, but I, I can't, my body can't keep up with that load. Um, it can't keep up with what's being asked of it. Um, that's when that chronic fatigue syndrome can set in because I just, my body can't produce the energy, right? Necessary in order to mobilize me in the way that my body's asking for and this feels to me like a variant of the freeze response of mm. sort of that um, dorsal vagal shutdown, right? Of that, mm. of that shutdown that we go into, that kind of becomes chronic. This, would you say that that's outside of the realm of possibility? Would you put that sort of in this no, level? No, I could definitely see that being there. Um, and I also see it being talked about that eventually my body just burns out, especially if that fight or flight response has been activated for so long. The load, um, we've used this term before in here, but the allostatic load that my body is, you know, putting forth to constantly mobilize me, eventually I just can't keep up with that pace anymore. Um, eventually it has to slow down. It doesn't activate in the same way because it just doesn't have the energy or the space to anymore. Yeah. And, but I do, I think that whenever our fight or flight is depleted, that's where we see kind of that most primitive branch of, of the vagal nerve activated according to polyvagal theory, right? Where we can get that dorsal activation where the body's saying, I can't put up the same fight or flight that I have before, right? And, and maybe that shutdown process enters in there. Absolutely. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to the physiology. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, even if it's not necessarily due to an external stressor, if the fight or flight response is overwhelmed, physiologically, what our bodies then revert to is the shutdown response. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think this is really also pertinent to us because of the brain. Mm -hmm. So we haven't talked about this yet. But one of my few reoccurring guests, right? The person who's been on the show um, the second number of times compared to you. I mean, you're number one right now, right? <laughs> All right. What a streak. <laughs> what I'll a streak, it. yes. It's Dr. Bonnie Kaplan. <laughs> and she sent me one of her books called The Better Brain Books. She's written a lot of research on <laughs> the brain and nutrition. <laughs> and I think she is one of just the lumineers of the field mm. and basically her whole thing is about the brain and metabolism and how the brain uses uh nutrition so basically what she, what she says is 
even though the brain is only 2% of your body weight, which is just like, that's tiny, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's 20 to 40% of your body's metabolic load, right? Mm-hmm. She's, she says 20% roughly of your, of your body's blood, which is carrying all these new nutrients, passes mm-hmm. through your brain every, every minute. So actually, when you're eating, you're eating to power your brain. Mm-hmm. And so what she's, what she's done is she's really looked into the research on nutrition mm-hmm. and the brain. And, she's, and she basically says, look, um, your brain functioning is completely dependent on your brain's metabolism. Mm-hmm. And where people in the past have gone wrong is that they've said, okay, nutrition is really important. And they've made one or, one or two big mistakes. They've then tried to treat different uh, problems with a single nutrient approach, right? Well, you just need more B12. She's like, well, that's not how things work because <laughs> the brain is really complicated. Yeah. All of these different micronutrients sort of um, work together. So yeah. if we're going to think about the brain as the primary metabolic load, Mm-hmm. we can't just give it one chemical to make mm-hmm. it work better we have to give it all of the things that it really needs mm-hmm. so she advocates for a broad spectrum micronutrient mm-hmm. um and then the question is like what is a micronutrient right and that leads us to the second problem that people sort of miss when they're talking about your brain and your brain metabolism and your mental health mm-hmm. and she basically says macronutrients are the things that sapolsky has already talked about proteins mm-hmm carbohydrates and sugars, Mm -hmm. uh, fatty acids, Mm -hmm. everything else, vitamins, minerals, those are what she talks about as micronutrients. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's when your brain gets low levels of of these, especially during moments of stress, when your brain really Mm -hmm. needs it, that you can Mm -hmm. see all sorts of issues later on. Mm -hmm. So um, she's got study after study. She has this really beautiful um, study that she did where there was a earthquake, I think in New Zealand where her colleague works and they tested the impact of people who got broad spectrum micronutrients versus people who didn't on things like anxiety, depression, um, PTSD. Mm-hmm. And the people who got the broad spectrum micronutrients did better than the ones who didn't. Mm-hmm. So for me, knowing her, having talked to her several times, mm-hmm. having read her book and some of her research, mm-hmm. um, I was like, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. And especially when you think about metabolism mm-hmm. and how the biggest part of your metabolism, right? The biggest single organ that's really taking all this energy is your brain. It's mm-hmm. like, we cannot talk about this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it really, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up, Jordan, because I do think it highlights, right, the interdependence um, that our body has. And I, I think we're really good um, in, in 2022 um, of dividing between brain and body, um, mental health and physical health right? But appreciating the way that we're trying to do in this series, the wholeness, right? Of the system that one really does have an effect on the other. 
I think it it offers again a lot of hope. Um, of, okay, there are so many avenues, right, that I need to be considering. This isn't just x plus y always equals z. Um, that there are some some variations in that to be considered, um, and understanding the impact that the metabolic load has on brain functioning, right, and all of mental health within that really helps us to approach that more holistically so that one as like clinicians we can offer more holistic care um, but it also gives people more clarity in, in how they can best care for themselves as well yeah. yeah i think that's true and i think that's one of the things that going through this series sort of taught me yeah. you know the more that i learn about my body and the more that I see clients and hear them talk about their bodies, it's like, oh, this whole thing really makes sense. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. I think it's too simplistic to talk about the body as a machine. Mm-hmm. But also, I think that if we keep that as a metaphor, you really begin to see how this whole thing works together. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And also, I think it fills me with hope, right? Because mm. that means there's multiple ways to solve these problems and to get mm. movement for people who are, who are suffering. Exactly, exactly. Because if I have this one approach and I'm taking the vitamins and I'm changing my diet the way that I've been told to, and I'm not seeing movement, right? And right. I'm still struggling in the same ways, that does feel hopeless, right? It feels like this is going to be my reality forever. Right, understanding the different impact that micronutrients have, right? And, and approaching this from a holistic perspective of, okay, what impact is my stress having, right? On the metabolic load that my body's starting or carrying, being able to appreciate that does offer hope, right? That things don't just have to be stuck um, because of the way that my body is doing things right now. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, Okay, so let's jump in and talk about juvenile diabetes. Mm-hmm. Now, did you know that, I'm sure you probably did because you know, you've studied all of this stuff, but did you cover this in your coursework, juvenile diabetes or any of that? I stuff? didn't, I didn't cover it as much. And so this was a lot of learning for me that honestly was really helpful. And even when I thought about kind of friends um, of mine that, that have had and have had, uh, for a long time, juvenile diabetes, it just helped me kind of understand kind of all that's going on for them and all the language I've heard them use. So this is very informative for me. Yeah. Yeah. So on a very basic level, it sounds like juvenile diabetes is an autoimmune issue almost, right? The immune system attacks the pancreas and the pancreas's job is to, uh, is to create insulin. Mm-hmm. And insulin, as we talked about, is the hormone that says, let's throw all these nutrients. <laughs> so if your immune system attacks your pancreas and you're not producing insulin, then your cells starve because there's no mechanism to get the nutrients into the cells, mm-hmm. which is crazy, right? Because then you have all this fat, amino acids, glucose that's just floating around the body coming up the works right like running in your bloodstream 
it's it's almost what I imagine it'd be like to be, you know, the sort of old metaphor of uh, water, water everywhere, but not a drop of spear. Like being out in, in the ocean and you're surrounded by all this water, but you can't drink it. Like that's basically what it's like. Your cells can't take it in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then you get into this, this sort of negative feedback loop, right? Because the, one of the ways that you treat this is um, through insulin. Right, injections. Insulin injections. Right. Um, but if you give the body too much insulin, then the brain doesn't absorb the nutrition, which can lead mm. to something like shock or mm. going into a coma. Mm. So how, like, make that connection for us, right? Too much insulin, which is actually what your body needs, can it make it hard for your brain to absorb nutrition? How does, right. that, how does and that work? So it's this really difficult balance, right? Where you don't want your insulin levels to get too low within the body. That's why you need the injections um, because then cells are totally deprived of energy, but also that circulating glucose gets too high. And so, of course, you, you need the injections, but also, and this is maybe a bit over my head, but it also, like you said, it deprives the brain of energy because it's trying to regulate, it's trying to keep glucose from getting too high. Yeah. Um, and so it prevents, right, that uh, maybe degree of circulation that a typically functioning system yes. would have, meaning there's not as much glucose getting to the brain. Because the purpose of the insulin is to keep those glucose levels low. Right. So too much insulin means not enough glucose getting to the brain. And so it's this really, really tricky balance um, of, of how do I keep that level in check to make sure that my body has what it needs. Right, 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 right. And my, and my understanding is, I mean, it's almost like a catch-22, right? If you don't have enough insulin, your brain can't absorb this stuff. But on the flip side, if you have too much insulin, what then happens is your body begins to become insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. and, when, and what that means is because it's getting, because the cells are already full of the, nu of the nutrients, they go, we can't take any more, even though the, the insulin is saying, no, we need, you need to take in more. Mm -hmm. So then the cells become a little bit, um, it becomes resistant, right? It's like if someone's saying, hey, you got to do this, and they're yelling in your face, after a while, you kind of just tune them out. Yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. But what that means then is that the next time that they want to say anything to you, they have to just yell at you louder. <laughs> right? I've seen this with my own kids. I talk about my kids a lot here. But it's like, man, if my kids feel like they're not being heard, what happens? They got to get louder. <laughs> they get louder. <laughs> Um, and so the same thing happens to the body, right? Mm -hmm. As the signals from the insulin get, get louder, the, the body sort of pulls back a little bit and goes, okay. Mm -hmm. And it's not as responsive, which means that then the, you need more insulin to get the same response. And it becomes this negative sort of feedback loop. Absolutely. If, when there's too much insulin in the body. And so it just, right. I think this section just so made me appreciate the people in my life that I know with juvenile diabetes, right? Um, or, or this insulin, de insulin dependent uh, type, because 
think of all the forethought that it takes, right? Especially if I know something's going to be more taxing, how do I prepare my body for that with insulin injections? How do I find that balance? I got to make sure I'm checking in with myself on how I'm responding, maybe how much energy I'm putting in to make sure I can ensure that my body gets what it needs. What an incredible, right? Like constant calculation that has to be going on just to get your body what it needs. Exactly. Yes. And I think that becomes even more apparent when type one diabetes then leads to type two diabetes, right? At the extreme, if your body then becomes insulin resistant like completely, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not going, that's what type two diabetes is. So type one is mm-hmm. where your body doesn't make insulin. And type two mm-hmm. is where your body doesn't respond well to insulin. Right. And so, you know, some people can get into these feedback loops where they've been giving themselves insulin. They mm-hmm. have been able to find that balance. Their body becomes insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as they get type one under control, they wind up with type two. It's just like, this is a never ending battle, right? This is so, it sucks so much. So it's a lot of forethought mm-hmm. for, for people oh. who, you know, struggle with this. They, they've got to really plan out what they're doing. Yeah, a hundred percent. And then what Sapolsky adds on top of this is the impact, right? That chronic stress has on this whole process, ultimately saying, right, if the body is constantly attempting to mobilize and to convert this energy into a more usable form that pumps even more glucose, more fatty acid that needs to be in the bloodstream, And so they're more likely to gum up in the wrong places and cause these really severe metabolic issues. And, you know, Zapolsky says, you know, because of that issue, it's that much more important for those with diabetes to manage their stress. But my gosh, as I'm reading this, I'm like, it's so stressful just to to make sure my body's getting what it needs. How can I possibly manage it when I'm automatically set up to have more stress than most people do? It's got, like you said, this like never ending feedback with them. Okay, stress takes a harder hit on my body. I need to protect it from it. but in order to protect it it's kind of stressful to constantly be monitoring and making sure I'm doing a good job and checking my levels and making sure I have access to whatever I need to level that out and my gosh yeah 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 because it you know part of the effect of the stress is to make your body temporarily Mm -hmm. insulin resistant and so if you're stressed out chronically your body is primed to be insulin resistant, which is like, mm-hmm. it's a catch 22. Yeah. And you know me, I'm, I'm, uh, my, we don't talk about this often, right? But sort of where I am in the field is in the deliver practice side of the field. And I think for me, that's where education really becomes really important, mm-hmm. right? Like if I was running a clinic, I would want people to be very, confident and to really practice how do they measure their you know levels of glucose how do they give themselves injections how do they do all of these all of these things and i think that that level of education and skill building with this population Mm. is 
huge, not just because of the skills, right. if they have the confidence of competence, mm-hmm. then it helps to reduce right. the stress of just having the, the disease, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I know how to manage this. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be really helpful for a lot of mm-hmm. people. I, I don't know how many people get that, you know? Yeah. I feel like sometimes when I go to the doctor, they just say, oh, yeah, well, we'll just do this. And I'm like, but what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even what you're slightly alluding to there is, you know, related to polyvagal theory, right? Of, okay, my body is going to mobilize energy differently if I am able to connect, right, around this stressor. And if I have a partner or a parent or a roommate that is aware and is in this with me and is kind of helping me check in and is saying, oh, I brought this for you just in case, right? That not carrying the weight of that stress by myself from a polyvagal perspective, then my limbic response doesn't need to be activated because my load is shared because that social engagement system um, that ventral vagal complex of the vagus nerve is activated. So my body doesn't need to mobilize in the same way. I think polyvagal theory um, offers this really beautiful uh, solution um, to those with, with an, an intense metabolic load, right? Of the power of connection to not feel alone in that battle. Right? Because if I'm able to activate that social engagement system, that means I, I can bypass <laughs> that limbic response and that limbic reactivity um, so that my body doesn't need to metabolize in the same way that it's not constantly getting switched on. Right? And the same is true right, without diabetes, that my body doesn't have to put forth this allostatic load when it's constantly being activated, if I'm able to activate my social engagement system and connect with people around me. Yeah. I think, so that brings up so many thoughts. And I think the first thought is, um, I have so many thoughts. Let me try to get them (laughs) organized. You can tell that this is like a live program, right? Because it's like, wow, I'm just being impacted live real time about what you're saying. Um, the first thing is, I think we really need to be clear on educating people, which mm-hmm. is part of what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. I think that brings confidence. Mm-hmm. And if you think about polyvagal theory, which is really the science of safety, mm-hmm. one of the sort of innate safety cues is predictability. Mm-hmm. And I think education sort of brings that, right? Like, mm-hmm. I know what to expect, which mm-hmm. actually means I feel a little bit safer. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, sorry, I'm a, sorry. And also it normalizes it. And of it this normalizes. isn't my body malfunctioning, I'm not broken. This is normal. Right. Other people experience this right. too. I said it also serves to connect and create that safety in that right. way as well. So you have the you have the the skill the competence and the confidence of a skill, you have the normalization, and um, the education which leads to predictability of I know what's coming, mm-hmm. and then also something that you just mentioned is our ability to regulate, mm-hmm. and how that impacts our fight or flight response, which of course impacts our body's level of insulin resistance, right? And it reminds me of 
you've probably never heard of this, but there was like a little known study done, I think like 40 years ago by uh, Salvador Mnuchin. And I don't have all the details. I'm just thinking of this now. But basically what he showed was family therapy um, had a positive impact on kids who had diabetes and helping them to regulate. Mm-hmm. And the study, of course, you know, whether they did research back then was different. And so some people have questioned the methodology and things necessarily haven't been re- reproduced. Um, or replicated. Um, but I think we shouldn't throw it out, right? Mm-hmm. Because, and I think this is important, not for everybody, mm-hmm. but for some people, mm-hmm. when you have that person who you can co-regulate with, mm-hmm. like we understand why for some people that can really, really help eliminate off of the problems such as mm-hmm. symptoms of juvenile diabetes mm-hmm. or even adult onset diabetes right mm-hmm. whatever the cause is so it's in the literature it happens for some people mm-hmm. and now we kind of understand why yeah yeah absolutely because i think once again we're just going to sound like the most broken records here uh but it is it's an issue of kind of rigidity if every time my body feels any sort of stress or any sort of challenge, right, which is inevitable <laughs> uh, during the day, even small ones, like I, I opened the door or the fridge doors this morning, and we're out of milk. And it's like, oh man, like even small stressors like that, right? If my only option that my body knows is to like internalize those little stressors, but all those, so the big ones where I experience major loss, right? Or major life transition. If my only option there is to kind of fight or flight, figure it out myself, internalize it, let my body put up this response in whatever way it can, that is going to have a severe impact on my body. Right. But if I can have more flexibility, right. And I can turn, you know, to my partner and say, shoot, we're out of milk. What do you think we should do? Uh, And he says, well, we'll just make this instead, right? That's a totally different experience for my body, right? Where it's like, oh, okay. I don't have to carry the weight of this by myself, right? And then the same way with major losses as well, just not feeling alone in it gives our body more flexibility in that response. I don't have to mobilize. I don't have to activate the sympathetic response. I don't have to go into fight or flight, right? Which wears on my body over time. I can have more flexibility depending on the severity of the stressor and I can reach out when I need it, which means that my body doesn't have to go through this cascading effect of trying to mobilize me, um, that it's not meant to live in all the time. I think that dovetails beautifully with Sapolsky's last point in this chapter, mm-hmm. right? Where he says, frequent stress or big stressors uh, might increase the odds of getting juvenile diabetes and accelerate the development of juvenile di- diabetes. And once established, cause major complications in this life-shortening disease, right? Mm-hmm. He talks about how there've been a few studies where they've shown people 
um, who've that for a lot of people with juvenile diet diabetes, they've had a lot of stressors before they get juvenile diabetes. So it's sort of this mm -hmm. idea that for some people, having a series of stressors impacts the body in such a way that mm -hmm. then their body no longer produces insulin. Mm -hmm. And so for people like that, for people, and we don't understand a lot about that yet, right? Mm -hmm. But for people like, like that, their ability to co-regulate, their ability to use that social engagement system um, for whatever reason, probably was hampered or impaired or, mm -hmm. you know, their, the body just, just couldn't do it for any, for any number mm -hmm. of probably really valid reasons. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's kind of like, okay, for certain people, not for everybody, mm -hmm. having big stressors is a pre, what's the word, not precondition. Yeah, a precondition for developing juvenile diet, diabetes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to adult mm -hmm. diabetes. Um, so we've talked a little bit about this, right? Mm -hmm. In juvenile diabetes, your body no longer makes insulin, but in adult diabetes, type two diabetes, your body no longer responds to insulin. And he says, uh, you know, in 1990, there was 15% of adults over the age of 65 who have adult diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked up the stats and <laughs> let's just say things have only gotten worse. <laughs> right? Um, apparently 27%, 26.8% of Americans have uh, diabetes, have type 2 diabetes according to the CDC. Um, now most estimates that I could find, they didn't really mm -hmm. separate out type 1 and type 2. Um, but they do say that type 2 accounts for about 90 to 95% of the cases. So, yeah, I mean, these numbers are only getting worse, which is a big deal. Um, in the book, he said 200,000 Americans died due to diabetes. Um, and this was what, 2004? I believe this book was written. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and in 2017, I looked it up, diabetes was the seventh leading cause of death in the US. Um, which is like, wow. So there's 270,000 deaths uh, due to diabetes in 2017. Hmm. Um, which is like a lot of people. And this is important because the same way that stress impacts juvenile diabetes, it impacts adult diabetes, right? Mm -hmm. It makes your body more insulin resistant. It makes it harder for your mm -hmm. cells to get what they need. And then you have all this stuff, sort of, you know, these macronutrients, these proteins, amino acids, I mean, amino acids, fatty acids, and uh, glucose that's just free floating in your bloodstream. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, right? Like, this is a big deal. And the thing for me that I learned after this was this Newcastle diet. Have you heard of this Newcastle diet? Uh, not until you had introduced it. Yeah. So this is really fascinating. Um, so there was a study, it was a very small study, um, but they've gone on to 
promote this as a diet in the UK. And so mm-hmm. something to talk with your medical professional about, right? Where they basically gave people a 600 calorie a day diet, which is tiny. I mean, that's a really low. That's pretty small. That's pretty, that's pretty small diet for eight weeks. And they gave this diet to um, 11 people. And seven out of the 11 people, when they tested them three months later, no longer qualified for the characteristics of having diabetes. Um, now, this is a hard thing to do, you know? And if your medical professional recommends that you can do this, then it's something to, to look into, mm-hmm. right? But I know, and you know, that the hardest part about this diet is going to be sticking to it. (laughs) And so on the one hand, there's hope. And on the other hand, like this is really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think this also comes back to sort of a polyvagal perspective, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because I think that for people who want to go down this route, we know that the level of your connections Mm -hmm. is probably the biggest predictor of success. Right. I mean, that's why things like CrossFit, I think, are so um, engaging. Right. CrossFit mm-hmm. makes it about, OK, me and this group of people were on this journey to get yeah. fit. Absolutely. And so I, I would bet the same thing is true here of like, OK, how well I'm able to work with my family members on this diet. Mm-hmm. You know, as my partner or my kids or my aunts and uncles or my friends sort of like in this with me, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be a big predictor of how well you can stick to this diet or not. Yeah, absolutely. Like, because it also serves as like a buffer for the additional stress that comes in, right? If right. I'm able to talk with someone about it and share that experience with them, I'm not going to need to seek out uh, familiar strategies to kind of regulate myself, especially around food, right? Which is a big way um, that we look to regulate ourselves or kind of reverse that fight or flight response. Um, if I can get myself enough comfort um, through what I'm eating, um, then maybe I can downregulate. Um, but if I'm able to receive that from another person, my need for that is just a lot smaller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's so true, right? Like having those relationships help you when you're like, man, I'm really hungry or man, I'm having headaches or man, I'm dizzy from this diet. And it helps you with the previous coping strategies, right? Maybe your coping mm-hmm. strategy was to go out and if you're like me, eat a you know a pack of pop tarts right but if you have that relationship you can co-regulate that instead of having that old um coping mechanism mm-hmm. yeah because mm-hmm. we all know that feeling right of reaching for something that's like i'm not even hungry i don't even think i really like wanted this yeah. but i'm already at the bottom of the bat what happened yeah right? and a lot of the time it's like my body knows that this releases something in me that feels good yeah. And I need to feel good right now. And, and so it is this automatic response that the body looks for comfort. Yeah, I think that's so true. And that's actually very polyvagal, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Porter talks a lot about this, how babies early, early on, mm-hmm. the first way that they co-regulate before relationships mm-hmm. is through nursing. Yeah. And so what they're doing is that they're stimulating those muscles mm-hmm. of sucking, swallowing, you know, and the larynx and the fair, pharynx. I don't, I don't know that word. You probably do better than I do. Um, and, and so in some ways, when we go to food in order to self-soothe and to regulate, 
we're going to like this really primal sort of way mm-hmm. that infants, that babies, right, use to co-regulate. Yeah, absolutely. And so it makes a lot of sense. And I think for me, mm-hmm. I'm going to go on a little bit of a soapbox here. This is really important because I've had a few clients, usually females, who come in and they say, I have an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And some of some people do. Mm-hmm. But what I actually hear my clients, the few that I've had who've had who told me this, what I've actually what I'm, what I'm actually hearing is when I am upset. When I'm angry, when I'm sad, my first way of trying to soothe myself is to go to food. Mm-hmm. And I think if you understand polyvagal theory, what that says is that's normal. Mm-hmm. That's sort of baked into what it means to be human. Absolutely. Because your You're physiology, your physiology. Mm-hmm is trying to regulate like you're trying to, like mm-hmm. you're saying. And one of the oldest first ways that we do that is through sucking, chewing and swallowing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Not to mention, right, when I do eat, these, you know, chemicals are released into my bloodstream right. that do feel good, but right. do temporarily give me energy, right. right? Or whatever it is, that feels good as well. Yeah. And so again, this is a part of the way that the body tries to restore that allostatic balance. If I feel bad, if I'm feeling stressed, my body says, you know, what's made you feel better before. Let's grab that bag of Cheetos. I know exactly where that ton of ice cream is in the freezer. Like, let's do that. That's a quick fix here just to kind of restore where we need to be chemically, comfort wise, um, the level of arousal that's a present like this can get us back to where we need to be. Right. Right. And so. Absolutely. And so what my fear is, is that they come in and they're, it's almost feels like they're ashamed of their need. Mm-hmm. Like when they say that, I, what I hear is my body is trying to co-regulate, but it doesn't know how. Mm-hmm. And it feels like they're ashamed of that. And I want people to know that's normal. Mm-hmm. It's sort of baked into you, right? When a baby's crying early, early on, month one, if you're a preemie, mm-hmm. you know, what, what they're saying is, I need to co-regulate. And the way that I do that is through nursing, Mm -hmm. sucking, swallowing, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And so I want people to know that that's normal Mm -hmm. to sort of have that need. Mm -hmm. And how can we help you to help you to do that better? Absolutely. That there's so much focus, I think right now on the bad behavior, right? And labeling it as bad and unhealthy or whatever it is, right? Um, But there's no addressing kind of what drives that behavior initially, right? And uh, a a colleague of ours, George Fowler, always references this um, Irish saying that says, everyone wants to talk about the drink. No one wants to talk about the thirst, right? And the thirst that's there in that is I need regulation. I feel unstable. I feel unsafe. I feel like things are out of control. This is a way that I get some stability and some regulatory capacity, which makes perfect sense. Yeah. Let's talk about that piece. Let's talk about how we can get that thirst satisfied so you don't have to reach for that same drink that's not getting you the effects that are giving you the, the results that you're wanting. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. 
Okay. Um, and so then, in the last part of this chapter, Sapolsky talks about metabolic syndrome, syndrome X. Do you want to take this one over? Why don't you take this one over? Or do you want me to? Because oh, <laughs> I, I actually had not heard of this before Zapolsky oh, really? introduced it. So this is new to me. So I can, I can do my best here. Um, and, and so basically what Zapolsky is, is connecting in this is the relationship that the metabolic and the cardiovascular systems have with one another. Um, and so syndrome X is kind of creating this new term that recognizes their interrelatedness. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it has, um, it kind of references just like we've been talking about when there's these elevated levels of insulin in the blood, there's elevated glucose levels. What impact does that have, right? On systolic, diastolic blood pressure, right? That all of those are very much related. We talked about kind of gumming up the works, right? Preventing that blood flow um, as that happens and just kind of appreciating kind of the relationship between them. Um, that insulin resistance, right? Your body's um, inability to store those um, creates just too much getting clogged up in the blood and there's too much fat or there's too much cholesterol within that, which prevents it um, yeah. from circulating the way that it typically does. Um, so this combination of things results in this metabolic syndrome, yeah. um, kind think, of this combination of factors there. Yeah. I think the thing about this that was really interesting to me was, I mean, he's basically saying, you know, if you look at levels of anything basically right uh, let's say glucose blood pressure and cholesterol mm -hmm. and if these are all slightly elevated mm -hmm. right they're on the far end of normal but they're still in the normal range looking at these things as a whole right they are predictors of things like heart attack stroke mm -hmm. uh mortality right and so it's this mm -hmm. it's the way that I imagine it is, I imagine that I'm like, I don't know why this comes to me, but I, I imagine it like I'm at a nuclear power plant, mm -hmm. right? And I'm the foreman and one of the little dials goes, you know, in, into the yellow. With one guy, if, if one dial goes to the yellow, it's not a problem. If it goes to the red, we have a big problem. But if, it's, if one dial's in the yellow, it's not a problem. But we got so focused on looking at, well, is this dial in the red or not? That what we did for a long time is that we began to ignore the fact that if 20 dials are in the yellow, we have a problem. Yeah. You know? And that's sort of what he's saying with syndrome X is if you look at your levels of any number of things, and for this example, we're just using glucose, blood pressure, and HDL cholesterol. And they're all slightly elevated. Mm -hmm. You have what they call technically syndrome X or metabolic mm -hmm. syndrome. And having those three, those four, those five that are all in the yellow mm -hmm. is actually a better predictor of a slew of problems mm -hmm. than any one of these things alone. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of goes back to what we've talked about of like taking a holistic look 
Mm -hmm. like not getting so focused on this one thing that we get zoned in, but like, can we zoom out, take a big picture, mm -hmm. and look at all of these things. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, this is what really helped to concretize what he means by allostatic load and allostatic mm -hmm. balance, right? Mm -hmm. um, the way I was taught, we were sort of taught under that idea of like homeostasis, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he gives this great example of the difference between allostatic and allostasis and homeostasis, right? He's like, if you were in California and there was a water shortage mm -hmm. and, you're, and you're thinking from a homeostatic sort of mentality, mm -hmm. you're going to produce, you, you're going to offer like a one-shot sort of solution to balance things out. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll just make smaller water tanks for homes. Mm -hmm. right um but the body is way more complex than that there's way more holistic stuff mm -hmm. sort of going on mm -hmm. so from an allostatic perspective you might do something like um convince people to preserve to conserve water right mm -hmm. also have smaller toilet toilet tanks have small smaller water heater tanks do less water intensive farming you're going to do all these different things across the different dials of your society mm -hmm to bring things back into balance. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that all of those have a role to play, right. right, in the balance that the body's trying to achieve. So me being able to focus on multiple, right, of those dials um, or those solutions like that you offered is ultimately gonna benefit all of them, not just the one that I'm focusing on. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of like the moment where I, feel like I kind of got the big idea in polyvagal theory mm -hmm. because when you when when Porges is talking to physicians mm -hmm. part of what he's trying to get them to do is to make a shift into an allostatic mindset right he's saying okay the body's whole purpose mm -hmm is to maintain sort of this allostatic balance. Mm -hmm. And so doing one thing over here sometimes misses the point. Mm -hmm. And there's an emotional component to that. Mm -hmm. And there's also a um, physiological side of that, right? Yeah. And so we know one of my favorite studies was um, they tracked the outcomes of psychiatrists. Mm. And the psychiatrists who were more friendly had clients who did better mm. on the same medication as the ones who weren't. And it's like, why? What is going on here? <laughs> right? Like, those things matter. Mm. And then also, like, how are you thinking about helping this person? Is mm. it just, let me give you this one thing? Mm -hmm. You know, or am I looking at you from a multifaceted sort of perspective? Mm -hmm. You know, so if you have type, if you have diabetes, we're talking about insulin and your relationships and your nutrition and how you're managing stress, or are we just saying, well, take this one thing and it'll make you better? Like those things don't add up. Right. As much as we want them to. How much easier would it be, right, if I did take this pill, right, or if I started this medication? and it balanced out everything else, right? Yeah. And that's kind of the hard part here is 
that complexity is beautiful and it offers us so many options of how to care well for ourselves and how to offer care as clinicians. But it's not the simplicity that people are hoping for, right? Because we want this to be a simple solution. Um, but if going through this book has taught me anything, it's really understanding the complexity of the body, the complexity of the way it responds to stress, um, that it needs to be addressed kind of with that same level of interdependence um, as, as we talk about how do we provide relief in these spaces. Yeah. Mm. All right, Dr. Conroy, so what's your <laughs> takeaway from today? What's your, what's your closing thought? Yeah, I do. I think, honestly, I just, this was really fun for me. I think we've done a lot of the cardiovascular stuff and I just love learning about just new systems in the body and helping me appreciate the complexity that the body has. Um, so I loved just learning about how the body really metabolizes and kind of getting the basics of that, um, but also seeing that this too, right? If this is kind of how the body has to respond to energy or has to respond to stress, right? Is mobilizing and getting more energy. It really clarifies for me, the response can't be to eliminate stress. I'd love for that to be the case, but this is earth on the project um, and it's just gonna be stressful. And so it really clarifies for me, the goal in this, the only hope that's really offered is how can I get flexibility where my body doesn't need to only have one way to respond to stress? Yeah. I think for me, the big thing from this section was learning about the energy that our body needs and the different types of mm -hmm. that, right? Like mm -hmm. um, learning about the difference between glucose, mm -hmm amino acids and fatty acids like, oh because mm -hmm. i think you know i am interested in this idea of nutrition mm -hmm. but i didn't understand the basic building blocks of that mm -hmm. and then talking with bonnie kaplan and getting into the micronutrients and how okay mm -hmm. these things all work together mm -hmm. um so for me, understanding sort of like the basics of how our body, mm -hmm. or the energy stores that our body uses was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then um, how nuanced this is mm -hmm. and complex, right? I think that was also really interesting on a personal level mm -hmm. of, yeah, if we're going to help people, we have to come at it from the sort of multi-dimensional mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. But there's also the direction to that, right? It's not just we'll just do eight different things and throw them at you. It's like these things all need to sort of be organized by mm -hmm. polyvagal theory, which says it's all about helping people to co-regulate. Mm -hmm. And once we can do that, mm -hmm. like then our bodies will be primed for health, growth, mm -hmm. and restoration. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. for me, the complexity of it all, but also how polyvagal theory think, offers a map forward. Mm. Oh, really beautifully cool. said there, Dr. Harris. I oh, love thank that. you, Dr. Carnroy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I do. I think that's a really beautiful map forward, a really helpful one. All right. Well, look, I'll see you next week.
All right, looking forward to it. Hey, before you go, a few reminders. Since you finished this podcast, you might as well earn CEs for listening. Check out the description to find out how you can listen and earn CEs. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, if you learned something, please, please share this with a friend or leave us a review in iTunes. That would help us out a lot. All right. See you next week.